I'm a super sleepy podcast host right now. Hello, Michael. Hi, how are you? Oh, how am I? How are you? I'm feeling good. And <laughs> you, okay, that's a very mysterious inflection. I had a nice romantic experience. Right, right. I started Wellbutrin, so now we're a house of. I know we're a podcast of Wellbutrin people. Yeah, on the buttes. Yep, on the buttes. It's like speed. I don't know. All I know is that it puts more dopamine and norepinephrine in your brain, so it is a little, you know quick yeah it's nice though yeah i've enjoyed it i'm into it i'm into it yeah oh what what um what's going on with you Hava? well i'm doing quite well i have begun my next crochet project which is a shawl for a friend and i'm very proud of it i feel much more like a competent crocheter now which is a nice little feather in my crocheted cap. Mm. And I'm working on some really exciting classes for the fall that a local synagogue is going to bring me on to do. That's really exciting for me. I'm feeling a little blah now, but I think that's just because it's the afternoon and like this is actually like my natural dip in energy time. Yeah. I'm the most energetic at like 11 a.m. is like peak Hava. Since starting the Wellbutrin the last three days, I've been most energetic in the morning, which is very unusual. Welcome to it. I know. It's weird. It's weird being a normie. I know. It's kind of nice though, right? Yeah. It really <laughs> is nice. It's pretty great, guys. Yeah. It's chill. It's chill. Today, listeners, mm-hmm. we are thrilled. So thrilled ecstatic Mm, so ecstatic to announce that we have a blessed listener voicemail from a very special listener Mm -hmm. let's give it a listen hello it's me bernie sanders calling in from Bloomington, vermont just wanted to give a big shout out to the pod chaos big appreciation for all the great work you guys are doing i'm a little bit of an old man so i don't fully understand all the youngin' stuff you kids are talking about, but uh, it's very scintillating, very intellectual material. Just had a quick question. I was wondering if you could talk about the social context in which the rabbis lived, like the economics of it. It seems uh, some of these rabbis were business owners, not capitalists, but they owned the land, they had workers and employees, household servants. Curious what the economics of that are. You know, no disrespect. Uh, to the great rabbis, but uh, on the side of the workers, you know, and being on the side of the workers is like being on the side of God. You know, God doesn't exist, etc., etc., but uh, God is a worker. He labored to create the world in six days. This is why we have the Sabbath. We all know this. God is working class. All right. Well, got to head out to the Ukrainian co-op. Right. Thank you for your time. Bernie, out. Okay. <laughs> that happened. That voicemail makes me smile. I've listened to it quite a few times at this point. Thank you, Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders for calling in. For calling into the show. I knew, I suspected you would be a fan. Oh, but me, it, me no, be a fan? Bernard. Oh, Bernard. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I thought he would like our show, but it's nice to have it confirmed. You know? Yeah, totally. <laughs> We're going to address parts of this voicemail i have to say the whole argument that god is a worker because they labored to create the world it's really interesting i think we have to do a whole episode on that sometime because i'm not sure whether i'm on board with that argument but god is a communist actually 
Oh. Oh, dear. Oh, yeah. I thought they were an anarchist. Well, God simultaneously owns all the capital and does all the work. Oh. There you go. Wow. Interesting economic models of divinity. Boom. You heard first. But. Foist. Moving to this voicemail from, yes, from Bernard. Yes, moving on to the social and economic context of the rabbis. We prepared for this episode. I just want to tell you all about our source that we pull some of our research from. A lot of the stuff you'll hear us spitting out in this episode comes from a chapter in the Cambridge History of Judaism by Shay Cohen, which is titled The Rabbi in Second Century Jewish Society. Just so you know, that's where we're pulling a lot of our facts from. We're not just spitting them from the top of our heads. So yeah, I leave the opening volley to you. All right. Mishnah, right? Oral Torah. Mm -hmm. That's written down. Sure. Basically written down by a group of rabbis that are referred to as the Tanah, and they're... The Tanaim. The Tanaim. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a Tana is a singular rabbi, and then the Tanaim are the multiple Tanas. A Tana is what I need right now. <laughs> Hannah Montana! I can't believe I never thought about that before. I'm going to tweet about it later today. Okay, great. Listeners, <laughs> you'll see the tweet before you hear the pod. Oh, okay, so gosh. these rabbis, they're the OG rabbis, right? Right. And also, another correction, they didn't write down the Mishnah. They composed the Mishnah orally, and then it was redacted by Shimon Bar Yochai around 200 CE. Okay. And it probably still wasn't written down at that point. None of this Mishigas was written down until quite a bit later. So these original dudes who didn't actually write it down, we're talking about second century rabbis, the ones who are orally transmitting Torah to their students. Right. A lot of what they're doing, I mean, this is my understanding, my guess at what they're trying to do, is that they're trying to construct a Judaism that is sort of in competition with temple Judaism, slash is intended to be able to outlive the temple, because a lot of them live after the destruction of the temple. Some of them are alive while the temple is still standing, but the majority of them live in a post-temple world, and so they're sort of working to construct a Judaism that might be the succession to priestly Judaism. It's hard to imagine that. When I first started listening to you tell me about the Talmud, however many months ago, <laughs> I was imagining a very structured, hierarchical society that these people were members of, had a lot of power in, because that's what I'm used to. Pedantic, logical arguments about the edge cases and liminal spaces in, like, legal discourse are things that happen in highfalutin institutions. Right. I project, and I bet a lot of listeners project, this is, like, boring legalese, and the context that it's taking place in is a highly structured society like ours. Mm -hmm. Though I know this, I'm always surprised because I forget it and I have to re-remember it. And what this chapter talks about is that the context was not that at all. Mm -hmm. These rabbis were probably mostly affluent, well-to-do, land-owning people who mostly lived in rural areas outside of the cities. Yes, the move to urbanize sort of came at the end of the Tanaitic period. Right. There's a bunch of important rabbis in the Amoraic period, which come after the period we're talking about, but it takes at least a whole episode to address the social context of the Tanaitic period, so we decided to focus on that one because that's what we had really good research for. So that's really interesting. They live in rural areas. Like, the cities are big, multi-person, 
and social units that we'd be more maybe familiar with that were indirectly controlled by Rome, the rabbis weren't really hanging out there for the most part. They were mostly hanging out in the country and they were mostly hanging out with their students. They were an insular little group. It seems like they sort of hung out with each other for the most part. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They were like magic card nerds. That, that's, the, that, that's the thing. They're more similar to magic card nerds than they are to like U.S. judges or like lawyers, high power lawyers. They're really kind of an esoteric weirdo group of people. Right. And much like magic card nerds, it's like some people were interested in hearing what they had to talk about. But for the most part, it seems like the broad spectrum of Jewish society, which was like poor uh, almost, you know, most people were poor at this point. Yeah. <laughs> and most of those people were, some of them were sort of interested in this weird esoteric stuff that the rabbis were getting into, but most of them were sort of like, eh, I could take it or leave it. Yeah, and the way that the rabbis, these these esoteric dudes hanging out with other dudes in their, like, you know, all living together or all in close proximity to each other, the way they talk about other Jews is they simultaneously acknowledge that all Jews are, like, equal to them in a certain sense, but then they also like dismiss them in certain passages. So there's this kind of love-hate relationship with other Jews who aren't scholars, mm-hmm. who are predominantly not affluent. Right. And they have this love-hate relationship that I think is very similar to lots of societies, including ours. Like, I think we all have unconscious love-hate relationships with people immediately above and below us in financial standing. I think that's Mm -hmm. at least a common tension that can be exploited politically. So it it is latent, at least. So I think that's very relatable. It reminds me that they're human. Mm -hmm. But it is interesting that they don't actually have real social power in most Jews' lives. They're really rich people off doing their own cult thing. Mm -hmm. And honestly, when I think about it, a lot of the stories in Talmud, I feel like our rabbis just like being really catty to each other. (laughs) You know, like they're having their little magic card battles of like little Mm -hmm. logical like one-liners. And then they're like, oh, like you're exiled, like got you. But they don't really have those kind of interactions with the common people. They're mostly like in their own little role-playing world (laughs) doing their own little thing yeah it's kind of like that movie like young rich asians what was that movie crazy rich asians crazy rich asians that's what it's a little bit like i mean guess just because the rich live in their own world really analogous to a cult these people are rather than (laughs) rather than to like institutionalized members of a hierarchy well those two things aren't mutually exclusive (laughs) that's true well that's true but you know the the cult I think is quite gay. I mean that's just gay on its face. What the rabbi like all these dudes hanging out with each other? You're a rich Jew. Mm-hmm. You're you're one of the few rich Jews. Yeah, right. Well, you're like a middle class. You're you're somewhere. You're in the upper middle class of Jewish society. Yeah, and you're choosing to go and live in the countryside with an older man and be his student. <laughs> That's pretty gay. Yeah. I mean, I do think they're, at the minimum, they have a an intense homosocial bond, if not homosexual. Yeah, it's homoerotic for sure. Yeah. There's a tension there, a man-on-man tension. Yeah. It's not women. The women are mostly not hanging out there, you know? It's an environment that's very devoid of women. 
apparently they were very biased against shepherds who they said you couldn't trust their testimonies because they're all liars. <laughs> so I don't know what that's Anti-shepherd about. Anti-shepherd sentiment Anti-shepherd. is at an all-time high. It's probably like a old rich versus nouveau rich thing. Like they're all like yeah. they own their vineyards. It seems like all like a bunch of Tanaitic rabbis in the Mishnah owned vineyards, but then they're really mad at shepherds. So it's like, oh, you make your money off of disgusting animals. I don't know. I wonder if, the, <laughs> but we make our money from clean like wine and vines. And mm-hmm. I wonder if there's a little. Mm, I know. I'm trying to. I'm pulling up the freaking thing about small cattle. The eternal conflict between farmers and shepherds, a conflict as old as Cain and Abel. There you go. Yeah. So I guess it's a class conflict. I guess to be a farmer is sort of more high class than to be a shepherd. Can the farmer and the cowman be friends? You know. I don't. Is this a song that well, I don't it's know from about? that musical? Uh, like mm, Oklahoma. Oklahoma. They're like other upper middle class people in that they put the poor on a pedestal and also kind of like poo poo their taste. Right. I want to bring this example from the Talmud of class antipathy, which uh, comes from Brachot twenty eight a. Raman Gamliel goes to visit Rabbi Yehoshua. These are both Tanaitic guys. When he reaches Rabbi Yehoshua's house, he sees that the walls of his house are black. He says to Rabbi Yehoshua, from the walls of your house, it's apparent that you are a blacksmith. As until then, he had no idea that Rabbi Yehoshua was forced to engage in an arduous trade in order to make a living. Rabbi Yehoshua said to him, woe unto a generation that you are its leader, as you are unaware of the difficulties of Torah scholars, how they make a living and how they feed themselves. Wow. So the one this is a great example of just what I was talking about of like two men in their insular little mm-hmm. Dungeons and Dragons world, which no, hey, I love Dungeons and Dragons. I And obviously I am also a part of a gay group in its own world talking to you all who are a part of that world. So, you know, we're really replicating that relationship here. <laughs> but uh, these two guys in their own little world, just having their own little fight about their things that matter to them. <laughs> to me, it solidifies the idea that these guys were mostly you know, fairly wealthy. This is like the exception that proves the rule. Right. And Ravan Gamliel here comes off as sort of like Lucille Bluth in Arrested Development being like, it's one scroll of the Torah. What it could it cost? Like $10? Oh my God. <laughs> he really just like, oh my gosh, you have to work? That's crazy. So these guys are rich. They're living out in the middle of nowhere. Some people are into them. Some people don't care. So really a lot of the social stuff they're talking about is really what they think society should look like. You mean they're sort of like their redistributive economic policy? Yes. They have a lot of vocal rhetoric in favor of helping the poor. Yes, they do. Right. But seemingly the poor, the poor were not super well taken care of. Maybe there's some like evidence in the text that they were taking care of the poor a little bit yeah they definitely weren't creating a socialist revolution in their time no 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 they were they were discussing how they wish society should be right when i imagine people talking about esoteric law not only do i imagine them as actually having power in a hierarchical society right but i imagine that their legal briefs actually have ripple effects out in the world like in the way that the supreme court decisions do right they're not really like for instance congress people or senators in our society they would be 
be more akin to like people writing articles on medium.com. Yeah, basically. <laughs> <laughs> and sharing it with their friends and then their friends, they're the only people who ever read it. Yeah, or like Twitter spheres. They're equivalent to Twitter spheres like mm-hmm. around queen yeah, bees. Right, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Ultimately, their work did create many ripples. Like after the Tanitic period, obviously their work continued being important and the circle of rabbis grew. And then moving on into now, like all Jewish life, is shaped by this. I mean, the Karaites don't hold by the Talmud, but I feel like even their ways are shaped in relation to it in some sense. Yeah, and you know, that change didn't happen until there was like a moment where rabbinic Judaism became more institutionalized. At some point, it became the thing, and we all started playing magic. And that was more like third century CE. That was Judah Judah the... Patriarch. Yehuda Hanasi. Yeah, he was alive at the end of the second century and into the third century, and mm-hmm. he apparently, you know, made schools, actual yeshivas, institutions of learning, a thing. Yeah, I think there were academies before but very Yehuda few. the Patriarch, but they really flourished right. in the Amoraic period. And before, it's it's really unclear how the rabbis made money, mm-hmm. how, the, how they supported themselves, which right. is another piece of evidence to suggest that they were, you know, had land. Right. The fact that they say that Torah is more important than making money, like, that is the rhetoric of a person who doesn't have to worry about making money. In the third century, when you suddenly have these institutions, now you have Jews who are wealthy but not rabbinical students giving money to these institutions that are supporting students who are both poor and wealthy going to the institution. Right. You start to have much more of a of a religious class. Which is probably a lot more recognizable to us. Mm-hmm. Right. We start to get a little closer to what we think of as rabbis today. I mean, even between Amor- Amoraic period and now, it's like completely different. But we're moving slowly closer to what we might recognize as a rabbi. I just really like this Tanaitic stuff because I love that culty homoerotic, like... <laughs> Like rich dudes like choosing to go and like do gay shit with each other. It's very, it's very, um, hot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, totally. (laughs) Oh, not the most original sentiment. We can't be original all the time. I know. Sometimes all we can do is quote. So, Bernie, Bernie. Yes, Bernard. It depends on what rabbis you're talking about yes that's the thing but i would say the earliest generation of rabbis they were mostly not workers i'm sorry to report not workers not workers Mm-mm. but bernardo i really appreciate this question i know we need more of you yes yeah, so we need <laughs> more like more more minches mm-hmm. i had read this chapter before but it really sent me back down a research rabbit hole which was really fun i really like this kind of stuff like social context kind of stuff it's yeah it's very fun for me that's all that's always the part of history that i've liked it's so easy to imagine that you're a more evolved person than other people if you don't know the context because then it's just mm-hmm. you don't know the context what the what the hell are they doing this is so so ridiculous 
Right. You mean in comparing yourself to the rabbis. Right. Because you're always projecting. There's always a tendency to project your context onto historical people. So it's nice to know a little bit more. And in a way, it's it's kind of melancholy to me because it's like, oh, the Tanaitic rabbis, they were having class antipathy. They were having class trouble. And from that time until now, like we have not really gotten much farther. In some ways, in many parts of the world, we have gone worse. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what the median family wealth in the second century Palestine <laughs> was like in comparison to the mean family wealth. So it's, right. it's, it's hard to know if actually, if we're, we live in a more unequal society now. Than, right, than right. They but did. in the second century CE, there were still plenty of parts of the world that had not suffered the evils of colonialism yet, who had still classless societies. I don't know. This gets into a whole idea of like better, worse, his, is history progress or not? That's a whole bigger question. The real thing that I'm trying to get at is just like they had the unresolved tension between classes and we have not like we haven't resolved it immunitized that dialectic so your goal listeners your goal listeners is to abolish class society you need to go home and really look in the mirror and abolish your class bias and (laughs) then go abolish class in the rest of the world all right go do it now go forth. go forth. rise up Noble listeners. Noble listeners. Or listeners of the peasantry. All you cute queers out there with sexy undercuts and dyed hair. Mm. Yes, I love that shit. Go out there and be a class trader. Or, you know, (laughs) message me on Tinder. That's what I'm trying to say. Oh, Michael. Just message me. Dear listeners, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Hi, How Are You? A podcast where two Jews ramble on (laughs) with issues of the Talmud and Jewish experience. Mm -hmm. You are wonderful. I hope you remembered to drink some water today. Stay hydrated. Call us or text us on the Talmud hotline at 401-484-1619. Please join our Patreon and get access to our delicious patron-only content. We are doing one patron-only episode a month. Yeah, we're making more patron content now, so it's a great time to get on. You can find me on Twitter at Hi, How Are You? And you can find Michael on Twitter at Miss underscore figured. And with that, I bid you adieu and buenas semana que tengas. Shalom. Shalom.